0: Our sermon passage for this morning is Exodus 32, 11 to 33, 6. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have go take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on each of your side, and go to, to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his neighbor and his companion and his brother. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord because I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They had made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This is God's word.
1: Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this morning, let me connect a few dots for you. Um, This day marks a four-year anniversary. Uh, It was four years ago today, this first Sunday of July, that we had our first worship service in this building, that that we all showed up and came in and worshiped instead of showed up, worked for about an hour and a half, changed clothes, worshiped and then change back and work for about an hour and a half. And so it just reminds us here today with no AC that we've had it worse, okay? So we didn't plan this. We're actually sorry about it, but here we are. Uh, My other thought this morning when I learned that we didn't have any AC and and sat through the first service um, was I thought about Acts chapter 20 where uh, Paul was preaching late into the night and a man named Eutychus was sitting in the window and fell asleep and fell out the window and died. Um, and so given the, uh, copious amount of carbs that we've all consumed this weekend and the fact that there is no AC, I've been thinking a lot about Eutychus. And it's, it's important that you know that a few years ago, I read a book called Saving Eutychus, How Not to Preach Boring Sermons. And, um, I'm going to do my best. That really is a book, by the way. Um, Great title, not such a great book. But anyway, I digress. Um, So this morning, we want to take seriously what's here in Exodus chapter 32. So let's pray together. Our Father and our God, this morning, we need to meet with you. We want to know you as you truly are. So give us a vision of yourself, we, we boldly ask. Take away any visions of you and your work that are untrue and shape in us a vision of your holiness, your justice, your mercy, and your compassion that's true and right in keeping with what you've revealed to be true about yourself. Help us to walk with you and to walk in your ways, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So at Redeemer, we are studying through the book of Exodus. Last week, we came to chapter 32, and we spent the majority, not just the majority, all of our time really in the first 10 verses. And so today, we're going to finish this part of, of Exodus 32 that Stephen just read for us. What's going on in this story is God it's, it's a well-known story that most of us know God's people have rebelled against God. They've sinned against him and they have turned away from him. And we'll summarize that here in just a minute. But the question for today's sermon is this. How does God respond to this rebellion? How Does God respond to the rebellion of his people against him? And what I want to push us all to see this morning is how God responds in this moment is in the scripture and is intended to teach us things about God's character. So God's response to this rebellion is intended, us to te- is intended to teach us something vitally important about God's character. Particularly, this passage is gonna show us that God does not take sin lightly and God is just and God is merciful to his people. So as we read through this and wrestle with this, I, I want us to say, what does this show us about God? And it's going to show us a God who is revealing himself as holy, just and merciful, all at the same time. So let's start with the first point, the rebellion, the rebellion. This isn't really in verses one through 10. It's, it's a summary of what we talked about last week. So um, you can go back and, and get much more detail if you want to go listen. To that sermon. But, but in short, God, the one true God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come to his people in Egypt and he has delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he's moved them through the wilderness to the promise, not to the promised land yet, but to the mountain where he's meeting with his people. And in this place, these people have rebelled against God. They've rebelled. They've sinned. They've turned away from God. What they did in verses 1 through 10 was they made a false idol. They made a golden calf. They looked upon this golden calf, and they called it God. They said, this is your God. They went further. They looked at this golden calf, and they said, this is your God, and they attributed God's glorious works to it. They said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. So they stole God's glory and gave it, attempted to give it to the golden calf. And then they worshiped it. They built an altar. They had a feast. They threw a party to celebrate the golden calf, which symbolized, in theory, the God who dwelt among them. But our passage begins with this. The people of Israel are guilty, God knows their guilt. The people of Israel are guilty, and God knows their guilt. So look at verse 10. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, unrelenting. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So we come to our passage today, the rebellion has happened, the people are guilty, and God knows they've rebelled, he knows their guilt, and he is prepared to respond to it. So how will God respond to this rebellion? What will he make known of himself? That really is the question for us to wrestle with this morning. Now, I summarize that as they've rebelled against God by making a false idol, by calling it God, by attributing God's glorious works to it, and by worshiping it. Now, lest you think that That's not exactly what happened. I want to give to you Psalm 106, verses 19 through 22, where where God's word tells us what happened and how we should think about it. Psalm 106, verse 19 and following, Israel made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So the people have rebelled. The question is, how is God going to respond to this rebellion? That pushes us then to our second point, and really um, the main driving theme of our service this morning, the response, response. God's response is kind of hinted at in verse 10, but it really begins in verse 11. But before we walk through step-by-step God's response, I want us to go to the end. I want us to start at the conclusion of the story. I'll give Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. This is where the response is moving. This is the end of the response. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So the response begins with God saying, I think I'm just going to eradicate the people and start over with Moses. And it ends with God saying, Let's continue with the plan. We're going up to the promised land. I'm going to go before you, I'm going to defeat your enemies. And all that I had promised you before is still going to be the case, even though this golden calf rebellion happened. Now, if we cut out the middle, by the way, we're not going to cut out the middle. But if we cut out the middle, then what we get is this story. They sinned. God was angry. God decided not to make a big deal about it. And so they went on with the plan that would paint a picture of God and his character and mercy that's very different than what we're actually going to see in this passage. But sometimes I do wonder if that's actually the vision of God's mercy that we give, is that we sinned and God could have been mad, but he just decided not to be. Friends, that is not a biblical view of mercy, And that's not a biblical view of grace. And that's not a biblical view of God's compassion. And what's in between chapter 32 verse 10 and chapter 33 verse one shows us some realities about the character of God that that reshape how we would tell the story of his mercy and his compassion. So let's look at it together. We're gonna see... Between chapter 33, verse 11, and chapter, I'm sorry, 32, verse 11, and chapter 32, verse 35, we're going to see five elements of this response, five elements of God's true character that are revealed in how he responds. And I think all five of them are important for us. Now, before we look at the five, let's make something really clear. Starting in verse 10, if God would have wiped Israel off the face of the earth, except for Moses, and started over with Moses, he would have been completely just and right to have done so. Israel deserved his wrath, okay? Also, because Moses was a child of Abraham and a child of Isaac, and the child of Israel, Moses could've, God could have made a great nation out of Moses and kept his word. He could have made a great nation out of Moses and kept his promise to Abraham and his promise to Isaac and his promise to Jacob. So there's, there's something more being revealed here that's really important for us to get our minds around. So five things that we learn about the character of God in his response to the sin of Israel. So there's so much more true about God than what we're gonna talk about, but these five things are, are very much on display in his response to Israel. Number one, we see in this that sin is a serious offense to God. We see in this that sin is a serious offense to God. Verse 10, let my wrath burn hot against them. To Aaron, verse 21, Moses said, what did you do that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Verse 30, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And some of you are going, well, yeah, but we know we're sinners. Tell us something we don't know. We know that. I, I'm not sure how clear it is that at this point they knew they were sinners. Remember, they were in Egypt for 400 years under oppression, worshiping false gods, under the sway of false gods. So far in our Exodus story, if my Logos Bible software is correct, so far the word sin has been used two times. And in both instances, it's been used to speak of Pharaoh. So not once in the story have the people been talked about as sinful. So one of the things that's coming to light in the story, remember these stories unfold progressively. We know the end from the beginning, but one of the things that's being made to light here is sin is a serious offense to God even the sin of his people. Sin is a serious offense to God, even the sin of his people. What's unfolding in this is that God takes seriously rebellion against himself. The Pharaoh story showed us that God took seriously the rebellion of the nations against himself. This story shows us that God even takes seriously the rebellion of his people against himself. Sin is always a serious offense to God. Number two, this story in God's response shows us that God does not overlook sin. So that narrative that we could falsely spin this as like God was mad and then he just decided not to make a big deal about it, that's the definition of overlooking, Right? your children are clearly disobeying and you're just gonna pretend that you don't see it, that's overlooking. Side note, that's bad parenting for those of you that are new to this, okay? But that's not what's going on here. God's not overlooking. He says, my wrath burns. Then Moses in verse 15 He goes down the mountain, and as he goes down the mountain, what he has in his hands, it says, are the two tablets of testimony. These are the the two stone tablets that have the Ten Commandments and God's covenant written in God's finger. And so what we're told in verse 19 is that as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the idol... And saw the dancing and the worship and the party, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, one way we could interpret that is Moses was livid, he went into a rage, and in his rage, he smashed the tablets. Don't interpret it that way. What it tells us is he was at the place of meeting at the foot of the mountain where the people had met with God and heard in the voice of God the Ten Commandments. And there Moses smashed the tablets, thereby symbolizing to the people, you've broken your covenant with God. God does not overlook your rebellion against him. So we're hearing this with the Christian lens. When I say overlook, there's a difference between overlook and forgive. Just let's be really clear. God does not overlook their rebellion against him. So Moses smashes the tablets. So when we read that, it's important for us to make a distinction between rage and anger. Moses wasn't raging. He was intentionally making a point commiserate with his anger and God's anger against the sin of the people. As I was thinking about this this week, I've been thinking about a story that Tim Keller tells in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And so, In the story, story, Keller says that he came home one day early in their church plant, which meant he was working 80 to 100 hours a week, was far more faithful to the church plant than he was to his family in any shape or form. And he came home and his wife was out on the patio of their apartment with the fine china they got for their wedding and a hammer, just smashing it, setting that one aside and smashing another. So Keller thinks... She's lost her mind. She's enraged. And he goes out and he's like, what's going on? And she was like, something's got to change. You're out of control. You're working too much. You're not paying attention. So he gets Keller's attention, right? My wife's breaking the marriage china. He repents. They make peace. A few days later, he says, tell me about the plates. And she goes, oh, those were all the ones that didn't have a match anymore. She's completely in control. She's not in a rage. She's just truly broken and truly angry and truly trying to get his attention. I think that's what's going on here. Moses smashing the tablets is saying to Israel, you've broken the covenant. Which shows us that God doesn't just simply overlook the sin. The sin will have consequences. There's more. Moses then takes the golden calf and grinds it into a fine powder. This is in verse 20. Pours it into their water supply and makes them all drink it. Now, I have no idea what that tastes like. I have no idea what the medical consequences of that were. But the point was is he wanted them to see that there are consequences to the rebellion. verses 25 through 29 Moses calls upon the people and he says here's a chance to repent if you're on the lord's side come to me if not stay where you are so some who had been in the rebellion came over and joined the people who were on the lord's side and some didn't and And Moses sends the sons of Levi through the camp to destroy the 3,000 men who have rebelled against the Lord and will not repent. This is intended to communicate that rebellion against God has consequences and God will not overlook it. Verse 35, God then sent a plague on the people. Why? Why? because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The passage goes to great detail to show that God does not simply overlook or pretend that our rebellion doesn't happen, even among his people. Third, by the way, I'm gonna pull all these together at the end. Third, The passage shows us that sinners need atonement before God. The passage shows us that sinners need atonement before God. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement, meaning to cover the consequences of and take away the consequences of your sin. So not pretend it didn't happen, but to atone for it. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses understands that sin requires atonement, and he even offers himself as a means of securing forgiveness for God's people. Now, the passage doesn't tell us how the forgiveness will come. It goes on to say that justice will be done. It goes on to say that sin will be visited upon them. But it introduces the thought and the category and the reality that sinners need atonement before God. And atonement, is a solution that deals with the guilt of sin without merely overlooking sin. Atonement is a solution that takes the punishment of sin away by placing it on another. Fourth, the passage shows us that atonement and forgiveness and reconciliation are possible because God chooses mercy. Atonement, forgiveness and reconciliation are possible because God chooses mercy. Let's go back to verse 11. And we're gonna deal with one of these, with this very thorny piece of this passage. So in verse 10, God has said, give me space so that my anger may burn hot against them. Verse 11, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring that they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So the the debated reality is this word relent. The Lord relented and Moses calling upon the Lord to change his disposition toward his people. Now, relent means relent. Turn means turn. So what does it mean that the Lord relented? At its most linguistic place, the word relent means to take a step back from harsh treatment to abandon an original plan and take a step back, make space for something else. Now, you guys all have that one kid that is relentless? You know that kid? We're not naming names, but we all know. Teachers, parents, coaches, all the things. Like, we know that kid that's relentless. What do we mean? That's the kid that just won't stop. Always on the precipice for more and pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope and more and more and more. And so at the end of the day, when you exhale and pray, dear Lord, help me, what you're really praying is, Lord, would you let that kid relent just once, right? They just let his foot off the accelerator for like just a second, So when the passage says God relented, it doesn't mean that history was going this way and God completely rewrote history and changed his divine purposes or his divine will. The scripture makes very clear that God knows the ends from the beginning. The scripture makes very clear that God's sovereign over all the unfoldings of his earth. But what this passage is telling us is that God's, while being in control of all things, still responds to the sin and the repentance and the prayers of his people. And it says he relented, which means he made space for compassion. He stepped back from his plans for harsh treatment and made space for mercy. Well, why would God do that? Ultimately, we don't know, but think about this with me. If God just destroys Israel and starts over with Moses, then he's made his name known as a just, righteous God who obliterates sinners. He's made that known throughout the scripture. That's not up for debate. But in this unfolding, he's revealing something else about himself. He's a just God who holds sinners accountable. And he's a God who makes space for mercy and grace and repentance and transformation. Because he doesn't destroy them. He moves forward with them. Okay, there is the number five, but before we get to number five, you're probably like, all right, well, well, man, like pull those strings and, and tie this in a bow and make it neat and tidy for me. Well, the Old Testament really never takes these themes and puts a bow on them and makes them neat and tidy for us. The Old Testament continues to develop these themes about the character of God. It develops the theme that God is serious about sin, and it's an offense to him. That theme is continuously developed throughout the Old Testament. It continues to develop the theme that God doesn't overlook sin, but he holds sinners accountable. And that theme develops all throughout the Old Testament it continues to develop the theme that sinners need atonement. They need sacrifice for sin. That's what the whole sacrificial system to be developed is all about. The scripture continues to develop the theme that atonement and forgiveness are possible because God chooses mercy. And those four themes are made clear In the person of Jesus. What Jesus offers the world is the answer to how can God take sin seriously, hold sinners accountable, allow for atonement, and be merciful? And the answer is in the person of his son, Jesus. Now, lest you think I'm just making that up, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in the person of Jesus God put sin on the sinless son and the sinless son offered his life as an atoning sacrifice to cover the sin of the sins of the world so that sinners might meet mercy and be forgiven this character of God is being revealed to his people in Exodus 32, and it finds its fulfillment in Christ. So this pushes us to the takeaway that we can stand before God only in two positions, in our sin or in his son. And there is no other posture in which we can stand before God. This pushes us to the fifth thing we learn about God's response. Repentance and remorse are appropriate responses to sin and to mercy. Look at verse 33, chapter 33, verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, the disastrous word is that they were going forward, but God was not going to dwell in the midst of them. They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from, the mount, from mount Horeb onward. So what's the deal with the ornaments? This isn't a biblical statement against ornaments. They had used their earrings and their ornaments to make the calf. And so by taking them off, they're saying, we want to have nothing to do with the sin of the calf. The taking off of ornaments was a means of repentance and a means of displaying remorse. So God is quick to show mercy in Christ. Repentance and remorse can join joy as appropriate responses to our sin and to God's mercy. So this response shows us that sin is a serious offense to God. God does not overlook sin. Sinners need atonement. Atonement and forgiveness are possible because God chooses mercy, and repentance and remorse are appropriate responses to sin and mercy All of these run forward for us through Christ. So I said there's really only two ways that we stand before the Lord. That is correct. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you don't know what it would mean to be a follower of Christ, you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, then what, I want to say this as, as gently but as truthfully as I can, what the scripture says is you stand before God in your sin we would want you to stand before God in Christ. So right out those doors to the left is a black table. On that black table are books, Bibles, resources that would help point you to Christ. Standing behind that table is a staff member or an elder who would love to pray with you and help you walk toward Christ. You can go right now, just get up. You can go while we pray in a minute. You can go while we take the Lord's Supper. You can go after this service, but consider Christ. That's our plea. For those of us who are in Christ, There's great freedom and joy in the fact that our sin has been taken away because he is our atoning sacrifice. Let us be those who find the joy of salvation, who hate our sin as God hates it, and who walk in forgiveness and hope and repentance and remorse before a holy